what you want to shoot for. All right, turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll still find that on 977. About ready to flip the page. I think I've said that in the past. We're talking about unity and diversity. The unity looks like this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, what we've already read. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That's the unity. That's the oneness. But then the diversity comes in the very next verse, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then the significance and the basis of what Christ has given by virtue of his descending and then ascending to heaven and pouring out these gifts of grace, the basis of that is explained in verses 8 to 10, which we covered last week, which I covered last week. So if, um, if you're interested to know about that language, you can always pull up the message from last week in your favorite podcast or probably from our church's website. So we're going to move on from verses 8 to 10, and we're going to move in the next sentence, which is verses 11 to 16. One sentence, the way Paul writes it. The English Standard Version does a pretty good job in that it makes it two sentences. I think I read as many as five. Uh, Some versions, uh, more modern, sometimes uh, break it up into five separate sentences. But Paul wrote one sentence beginning in verse 11 through verse 16. If you actually have an old King James Bible or a new King James Bible, it keeps it as one entire sentence, which is is good because that's the way he wrote it. I wouldn't want to have to diagram that sentence if I were still in school. Uh, That would be a mess. At any rate, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones passed away in 1983. He was British. He was a a doctor who turned, uh, became a believer, and he turned theologian pastor. Uh, He wrote uh, some very extensive commentaries based upon his sermons, but not a lot because it took him so long to go through any book of the Bible he happened to be in. Uh, Rick Steele has read quite a bit of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I haven't because, like in Ephesians, I want to say, I think there might be six volumes, it might be four. I can't remember. He spent a lot of time in Romans, too. I'm not sure he ever finished Romans before he died. But uh, I I can kind of appreciate... The D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a really good, he was one of the good guys, especially in his era where liberalism was creeping into a lot of denominations and churches. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had more than 250 messages out of Ephesians. So he took a long time to get through Ephesians. I'm now at the point where I'm just embracing the fact that the second three chapters are going to take longer than the first three chapters. We're really... Only, we're gonna, I'm going to read the sentence, but we're only going to do a verse. Uh, as I read this sentence, verses 11 to 16, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick out the minefields. Uh, this isn't, these aren't the only things we're going to talk about, but going through this sentence in the weeks to come, these are some of the things we have to address, some of the things that are important, some of the things that good Christians and good churches, even good denominations, disagree with. Now, some of them take it too far where it's less of a good thing of disagreeing. Some of them go 
to an extreme, you can look at these verses and, and make it say something it doesn't say. But in some respects, Christians can disagree about some of these things, and each one thinks that they've got it right. I think I've got it right. I'm fully persuaded in my own mind that what I'm going to teach you is exactly what needs to be taught. But I have to allow for the fact that I'm not perfect and I get it wrong too. One of the reasons why I quote some of the people I throw up on the screen is because what I teach is not novel. It's not meant to be novel. If I come here and tell you that I'm going to tell you something that you won't get anywhere else, like it's new, brand new information, that's, that's the time to leave because it's heresy. I'm not teaching new things. I'm teaching old things. And so I pull up some of these guys from the past that are uh, the giants that I'm on their shoulders, and I can pass on what they've said to our benefit. Context, I think, solves so many Bible problems, and the reason why, there's lots of reasons why Christians disagree. Uh, it's their tradition they were raised in. It, may, it also is due to the fact of at what point in life did they become Christians? Uh, how were they shepherded? What kind of churches did they come from? Um, it has a lot to do with people not understanding or knowing the context of Scripture, which is why ever since I've come here, other than a few times we do a topical series, most 95% of the time we're going through a book of the Bible because that way you get things, or you at least have to deal with the context, you're forced to. You're not just picking and choosing what the way you've constructed Scripture, and now I'm presenting this this group's viewpoint, the Baptist way to look at the Bible, or the Presbyterian way, or the Reformed way to look at the Bible. That's not the goal. The goal is to just look at the Bible in context. And that's what we're doing in Ephesians. So it looks like this. He starts off, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And we've got several minefields there. The first one would be the word apostles. What is an apostle? Do we have apostles? You can once in a while, if people still got newspapers, I, don't, I think they're kind of scant these days. But when people got newspapers and churches advertised in newspapers, sometimes a church would advertise such and such apostles going to be at our church. Is that what Paul's talking about when he uses the word apostle? What is an apostle? We're going to talk about that. We've talked about it in the past. And this will be the last time, I think... Certainly the, the most in-depth time, we talk about it now through the rest of Ephesians. Uh, there's a book out, among many books, this is a new one, forward by Bill Johnson, who's part of the New Apostolic Movement, or Reformation, probably about maybe 20-year-old movement, called the New Apostolic Reformation. I watched uh, something that John MacArthur said on this. He said, it's not new, it's not apostolic, and it's not a reformation. Uh, but they're called, you know, this idea of that we have modern-day apostles beginning with this new millennia. God has re-gifted the church with apostles and prophets. So that's, that's our first minefield. The second minefield is prophets. Uh, regardless of what you may think about apostles, well, what about prophets? Do we still have prophets? Uh, in some sense, looking back on different influential people that God has used in the church in my lifetime. 
Uh, I would think A.W. Tozer is sometimes called a modern-day prophet. Now, he passed away in 1963, but he spoke to his generation in the 20th century. He's kind of called a modern-day prophet. And most of the people that say that, they don't mean to say it's a prophet like what Paul's talking about. What they mean to say is there's a definition, if you look up in a, in a really big dictionary, what is a prophet, way down the list, probably one of the last definitions you'll find and I wrote it down somewhere, but I'm not sure I can find it quickly. Way down the list, uh, a prophet is a spokesman or proclaimer of some doctrine, cause, or the like. In other words, it's somebody who speaks to an issue when most people wouldn't touch it. And he's, in a, in a church sense, he's calling the church to look at what Scripture says about something when it's not popular to look at it or it's not popular to proclaim it. And so he's kind of called like a, a modern-day prophet. But is that what Paul means when he uses the word prophet? Now, there's not a lot of controversy with evangelists. There's a little bit of controversy with the last where it says shepherds and teachers. Your Bible may read pastors and teachers. It's not a big controversy, but the question is, are we talking about two different gifts or one gift kind of combined two sides of the same gift? There's a little bit of controversy there. I'll touch on it briefly. Moving past that, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, the one minefield there, the one thing where there's some disagreement, would this be this idea of work of ministry. Who is charged with the work of ministry? Depending on your Bible, there might be a comma right after the word saints. Or there might not be. J.D. Greer, who pastors a very large church in North Carolina, he's mostly a really good guy. He was president of the Southern Baptist Convention a year, a couple years ago. He said when he became a pastor, he left the ministry. Which is kind of an odd thing to say. But that's something we'll deal with next week. And then moving in through the rest of the sentence, verses 14 through 16, which we've read, so I'm not going to reread those. But something that's a little bit of a minefield here is this idea of speaking the truth in love and the body building itself up in love. What's the balance between speaking the truth and love? Probably all of us tend to err a little bit on one side or the other. Probably all of us have erred on both sides. So uh, it's easier to see when somebody else does it than when I do it. But I can think of people that I think are, I don't disagree with what they say. I'm just not a big fan of how they say it. Uh, other people, I think, can be afraid to speak what is true in the name of love. So... That's a, a minefield we'll deal with, I'm not exactly sure when, but eventually. Two side, two different viewpoints on verse 11. From the interpreter's Bible commentary, this is uh, the Bible commentary that I've referred to a couple times in the past. It's from the Methodist tradition, uh, Abingdon Press, from 1953. So this represents on some level what a typical Methodist believed 
about Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 in 1953, their position is this. The previous usage of the writer shows that he thinks of the apostles and prophets as a closed corporation of unique significance. The honored honored leaders of the first generation who constitute the foundation of the church and were the original recipients of the revelation. By their very nature, these offices could not belong to the permanent structure of the church. That's their position. No, we don't have apostles and prophets. On the other side of the coin, from the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary, 2010, on Ephesians, which is an excellent read when I use it, but their position is quite different. Some interpreters would draw a line between the first two gifts on the list and the latter three and argue that the gifts of apostle and prophet ceased in the late first century or early second but that evangelist pastors and teachers continue to function in the church. This cannot be argued exegetically in Ephesians, as Marcus Barth correctly asserts, quote, Ephesians 4 does not contain the faintest hint that the charismatic character of all church ministries was restricted to a certain period of church history and was later to die out. That's two very different opinions. I have every confidence to believe the writers of both of those sets of commentaries were saved by the gospel of God's grace. That they're highly committed to scripture and understanding scripture. In other words, they're on the right side, but they differ on how to look at those gifts. So let's start. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now without the added explanation... Verse 11, here's what he gave. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So it's not what he gave in Ephesians 4, it's who he gave in Ephesians 4. And because there are other lists of gifts in other places in the New Testament. But in Ephesians 4, it's not what he gave, it's who he gave. And who he gave to the church, in this case, they are all gifts of speaking. People that are saying something to the church. We start off with the apostles, a word that's found 81 times in the New Testament, um, either as a singular or a plural. 81 times uh, the New Testament talks about apostles. Uh, So we know in this category we've got 12. Nobody disputes that. When Paul talks about the apostles are a gift of Christ to the church, nobody's debating We've got those 12. They're in. They're in. And then besides that, there's really no debate that Paul's in. Paul's an apostle. It's very clear to the church at large, 12 apostles are in. The apostle Paul's in. And out of the 81 times that the word is mentioned in the New Testament, I think it's like 75 times it's either talking about one of those or all those 12, or it's talking about Paul. So almost, when the word is used in the New Testament, it's almost exclusive to those 13. However, I could 
I have to bring up Barnabas and Silas, two of the traveling companions of Paul. Barnabas went with Paul on his first missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 14, it talks about Paul and Barnabas, the apostles. And it includes Barnabas. And the same thing happens with Silas. We're referring to him accompanying Paul on a missionary journey, specifically to Thessalonica. Silas is grouped in with this idea of being an apostle. And then besides that, you've got two or three other less clear references in the New Testament that kind of could be taken one way or the other. Uh, they're far less clear. They're, they're kind of passing references. Sometimes the word is translated messenger rather than apostle. And the reason why it's translated messenger is because if you define the word, the word literally means one sent forth. So... I think one of those cases, I think it's Epaphroditus, is called a, a messenger of the church. He was sent forth by the church. In some, I will say with Epaphroditus, in some lesser sense, he was an apostle. He was sent by the church. In some lesser sense, if we still wanted to use the term without it being confusing, we, I think it would be kind of similar to when a church commissions and sends out a missionary. They are sent out with the gospel, in some sense of being sent out, sent forth, in some sense they're an apostle. But almost all of the time, it's referring to these 12 and that guy. So here's a, here's a fun trivia question. Knowing what you know to this point, if you had to choose one apostle as chief among all the apostles, I wonder who you would choose. And it can be done. It's not like, well, isn't that disputable? No, it, it, it can be done. There's one apostle that you can choose if, if you choose wisely. Choose rightly. There's one apostle that stands out as chief among all the apostles. Anybody want to shout out a word? The answer is? Jesus the Apostle. Hebrews, that should always be your answer if you're not sure. I think it's Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, sent forth by the Father. He's the ultimate apostle. There are no other apostles except because we have Jesus sent forth by the Father. He's the ultimate apostle. Now, Jesus himself chose 12 to be his apostles. We read about several places in the Gospels. Here's Luke's Gospel. During those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he, this is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them. So out of all his disciples... After a night in prayer, he chooses 12 to be his apostles. He also named them apostles. We've got Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, uh, called James the Greater, or no, James the Less. Uh, James the Greater is James and John, James the, and then James the Less, Simon the Zealot, 
Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Which the other disciples didn't know that. Jesus did. And uh, so Judas, we know the story, Judas falls away. So when Judas falls away, what started off as being 12 apostles, now we're, we've got it whittled back down to 11. Uh, which the church, after Jesus dies on a cross, uh, is resurrected, ascends to heaven on the 40th day, and between Jesus' ascension into heaven and before Pentecost, uh, the, the believers gather and they choose a replacement for Judas, who fell off the table. And so it looks like this in Acts, the book of Acts, where this is interesting because not only do we have the replacement for Judas the traitor, but we also have criteria associated with what constitutes an apostle. Therefore, this is Peter talking, therefore from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So here's the criteria. We need, a, we need an apostle to complete the number 12. He's got to have been, he needs to have been with Jesus from uh, his baptism until he was ascended into heaven and he's a, he's a witness of his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic service that Judas left to go to his own place. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. So Matthias was numbered with the eleven apostles, and you've got twelve. So we've got 12 apostles again in Acts chapter 1. Besides the 12 apostles, we've got Paul, who clearly identifies himself as an apostle. And though his circumstances are highly unique, he meets all the qualifications of being personally taught and trained by Jesus and a witness of his resurrection. And so if you go to the book of Galatians, which is the one right before Ephesians, we'll read just a little bit of the way Paul opens his letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Just flip back a couple pages, the book right before, the letter right before Ephesians, Galatians. Chapter 1, it reads like this, and I'm going to skip around. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So Paul said, I'm not an apostle because I declared myself an apostle. I'm not an apostle because the other 12 declared me an apostle. I'm an apostle by the will of God and by the will of Christ. I am chosen by God slash Christ to be an apostle. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But 
when he would set me apart before I was born, and who had called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. I'm an apostle, not by anyone's doing out here, but by God's doing, and the message I preach, I got from Christ. I didn't learn it in Sunday school. I didn't learn it in synagogue. I didn't learn it in church. I didn't learn it from the other apostles. I learned it from Christ himself, who set me apart, chose me, just like he chose those other 12 after a night in prayer. I was chosen by him, appointed by him, to be an apostle, and so Paul introduces himself in most of his letters, something to do with the fact that I'm an apostle by the will of God. Here's my own conclusion. Apostles are a closed group of men chosen and sent by Jesus as his fully authorized representatives. In the same way that God the Father sent Jesus as an apostle, he's our apostle. If you want to know what God is like, he told, uh, was it Thomas or was it Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There is no greater expression of who God is apart from Jesus. And then Jesus chooses apostles to represent him in his physical absence from the earth. They represent him, they speak for him with full authority as they are chosen by him. Here's what Charles Hodge says in his commentary in Ephesians. I talked about him last week. Uh, Charles Hodge was a, uh, spent most of his career, most of his life, as a professor at the Princeton Theological Seminary back when they taught the Bible, uh, back in the day. So uh, his, his commentary in Ephesians is spot on. He says this, First, the apostles, the immediate messengers of Christ, the witnesses for him of his doctrines, his miracles, and of his resurrection, infallible as teachers, and absolute as rulers in virtue of the gift of inspiration and of their commission. Apostles were infallible, and they were inspired when they spoke, thus says the Lord. It doesn't mean they were sinless. It doesn't mean they were sinless. But when they spoke as a representative of Christ, it wasn't open to debate. It wasn't like the church took a vote, do we agree with Peter or not, when Peter said, this is what Christ has commanded me to communicate to you. It was gospel. It was true. Charles Hodge goes on to say, No man, therefore, could be an apostle unless, number one, he was immediately appointed by Christ. Number two, unless he had seen him after his resurrection and had received the knowledge of the gospel by immediate revelation. And number three, unless he was rendered infallible by the gift of inspiration. That is an apostle as Paul is writing about it to the Ephesians. Appointed by Christ, infallible, inspired, a witness of his resurrection, received the gospel, directly communicated to him by Christ. These things constituted the office and were essential to its authority. Those who, without these gifts and qualifications, claimed the office are called false apostles. And you can read about them in 2 Corinthians. So there is such a thing as a false apostle because they don't meet the criteria. That would be a true apostle. 
Now let's move on to the word prophets. A prophet or prophets spoke inspired messages, words. The only question was, is this person a true prophet or a false prophet? They're, they're similar to, to apostles, but they're different in that you didn't know if somebody came to your, to your gathering as a, as a little Christian church in the first century, if somebody comes in and they have a word of prophecy, well, you're not sure. I mean, if Peter comes, you know who Peter is. If Paul comes, you know who Paul is. You don't, de- you don't have to debate that. But if somebody comes in and they say they're a prophet, uh, it had to be determined, is this a true prophet or a false prophet? And so there was actually a gift of discernment given to the church as well. Peter said, makes this statement in his second letter. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. If it's from God, I'm talking an inspired prophecy. It's not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So a prophet in Scripture is somebody who God puts his words in their mouth and they speak it through their own personality and vernacular and colloquialisms. But it's an inspired message by God to the church. Here's what John Stott, uh, another guy from across the pond, Here's what John Stott says about apostles. In the primary sense in which the Bible uses the word, a prophet was a person who stood in the counsel of God and who heard and even saw his word and who in consequence spoke from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, a prophet was a mouthpiece or spokesman of God, a vehicle of his direct revelation. In this sense, we must again insist there are no prophets today. Nobody can presume to claim an inspiration comparable to that of the canonical prophets or use their introductory formula, thus says the Lord. If this were possible, we would have to add their words to Scripture and the whole church would need to listen and obey. That's the problem with saying there's a modern-day prophet. You're saying God has inspired you with a message as a gift to the church. Write it down, and we can add, add words to Scripture. Because there's no possibility of error if it's inspired by God, which is what a prophet is. Charles Hodge similarly says, A prophet is one who speaks for another, a spokesman, as Aaron was the prophet of Moses. Those whom God made his organs in speaking to men were prophets, whether their communications were doctrinal, preceptive, or prophetic in the restricted sense of the term. Everyone who spoke by inspiration was a prophet. The prophets of the New Testament differed from the apostles in that their inspiration was occasional and therefore their authority as teachers subordinate. The nature of their office is fully taught in 1 Corinthians 14 as the gift of infallibility was essential to the apostolic office so the gift of occasional inspiration was essential to the prophetic office. I realize that's a mouthful but at least I'm, give, I'm, I'm at least trying to send you down the right direction. Apostles and prophets are quite unique to the church. We've got apostles and prophets. So here's, here's my objection. Here's the objection of uh, uh, the Zondervan exegetical commentary. It, it sounds like 
What Charles Hodge and John Stott, in fact, what I'm saying, is it sounds like the first century church was at a terrific advantage because they had five gifts that built up their church and made them unified. They had apostles, they had prophets, they had evangelists, they had pastors and teachers. And here we are, not quite 2,000 years later, but rounded off 2,000 years later, and the best we can come up with is three. We've got no apostles. We've got no prophets. And the best we can muster are evangelists, pastors, and teachers. How in the world could we be as healthy as that first century church when we're lacking the two? And the answer to that question is, we're not lacking the two. Because our church is founded on apostolic doctrine. It's founded on what they received from Christ upon which every church that is honoring to Christ adheres to. If we have a new apostolic reformation, we've now got a rival group of apostles and now we've got two foundations, not one. And you don't have unity. You don't have the unity of the body of Christ with two foundations. There's only one. There's one cornerstone Christ There's one foundation, the apostles and prophets, and that foundation was laid in the first century. And we have the benefit of that. Every time we open scripture and read what they wrote in what we call the New New Testament, we we are receiving the gift that was originally given to the church by which we are built up from. Very quickly, um... The term occurs twice already. It occurs in Ephesians chapter 2. It occurs in Ephesians chapter 3. Each time Paul uses this this, uh, phrasing, apostles and prophets, each time he does that, he's emphasizing the oneness and the unity of the body. We are connected with the church that was born at Pentecost because of the apostles and prophets. And any church after us until Christ comes will be connected to the same church because of the apostles and the prophets. Now, very quickly, because the next two are quick, evangelists are exactly what you would imagine. It's those that are proclaiming the gospel. They are gifted with proclaiming the gospel. I like what Kent Hughes, who pastored up at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, said. He said, these are the obstetricians of the church. They're the ones that are in uniquely gifted to bring new life to the church. People are converted to the gospel under their ministry. Billy Graham was, was an evangelist. Um, you know, in his, in his day, he was marvelously used by God to bring people into the kingdom of heaven. I've heard some terrific messages by Billy Graham back when his crusades were on television, some very convicting messages by Billy Graham as he had that gift of bringing, of bringing new life, starting churches in a sense, or bringing new life into the church. It doesn't mean anyone else is exempt from evangelism, but he was uniquely gifted with bringing people into the kingdom of heaven. Then but you've got shepherds and teachers, which I think, I don't think you can sharply divide them. I'm not entirely sure they're exactly the same, but they're so close. Uh, there's only one uh, article. There's this, the apostles, one group. The prophets, second group. The evangelists, third group. And then it doesn't say the pastors and the teachers, but the pastors and teachers, or the shepherds and teachers. I think the group is so closely related, though they're not exactly equivalent, 
but they're grouped together as one. These aren't the obstetricians of the church. These are the pediatricians of the church, the way Kent Hughes phrases it. These are those that are entrusted with the, the health and welfare of the church now that they're part of the church, now that they're in the church, how they are to grow, how they are to mature. What does good health look like? That's what they are charged with, the pastors and teachers. What are your comments and questions? Uh, yes, Michelle. Okay, so according to yes, I think he was, he was an apostle. I think Matthias does meet the qualifications because he met the criteria of he was familiar with Jesus' ministry from start to finish. He was a witness of the resurrection. And based upon their prayer in that upper room, show us which one you have chosen. Okay. You have chosen. Matthias is an apostle. I don't think... Barnabas and Silas are apostles in the sense that Paul is referring to here. I think they were closely associated with Paul's apostleship, and they were sent out by the church at Antioch, so they were sent forth on that level, but they're not on the level of the twelve and the one. Good question. Joe. Yeah. All in one book? Yeah. And you've all got one? <laughs> yeah. 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 We are not at a disadvantage. We are at a tremendous advantage. I completely agree. Which I'm inclined to say uh, that when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, do not despise prophecies, I think that's exactly what he's talking about. Because we live in a culture where God's word is, in many circles, despised. They're not interested in what the Bible says because they view that as a static book that was good for a certain era, but tell me about what God's doing in your life now. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer will nail that in his book. What God did 2,000 years ago is far more important than anything he's doing in your life. Because whatever he's doing in your life is based upon what is already done and finished. And that's most important. Not my experience. Somebody else? Eve. You're not going to disagree with me again, are you? No. Oh, yeah. Um, the, I can't give you a thorough understanding. My easy answer is what you see taking place at Pentecost is a fulfillment of that because Peter says it is. I don't know that he's teaching. I would disagree that that implies that that is an abiding gift now for 2,000 years. I think Paul very explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 13, it's a temporary gift, which is another highly debated passage of Scripture. But whether there be knowledge, it shall pass away. Whether they, there be tongues, they shall cease. Uh, I think there's a third one, but I can't remember what it is. But what abides is faith, love, and charity. Faith, hope, and charity or something. Uh, but it, so then the debate becomes, well, when he says it's knowledge is going to cease and tongues are going to cease or pass away, when? The question is when? And so the debate is, among the very, well, even mildly charismatic churches, they're going to be, well, it's not going to cease till Christ comes back. That's when it ceases. Those that believe in the cessation of those miraculous gifts would say, it they ceased with the completion of Scripture. Because then the apostolic doctrine was complete. It's, com 
It's given to the church. That's the foundation upon which we build. It's more complex than that. But the one book I can recommend is Signs of the Apostles by Walter Chantry. It is out of print, but I'm, unless everybody rushes to eBay to try to get one, uh, I'm sure you could probably find a copy of Signs of the Apostles. I've got a copy I will lend out, but because they're hard to get to, uh, you'll have an expiration date when you've got to get it back. But I'm happy to lend it out. Walter Chantry uh, from Pennsylvania, Reformed Presbyterian. He's the one that really clarified it in my own mind. Because I've, I've been all over the board on charismatic stuff. And Walter Chantry really was helpful to me. Theron. Not that I'm aware of. Which isn't unusual because you've got 12 apostles. And on some level, they're so equal. They're, well, I mean, three, three do, do have a unique role. Peter, James, and John. But most of the apostles, you don't know anything. I mean, some are never referenced after their choosing. So, yeah. That's the easy question. What's the hard question? I wouldn't want to use that word because prophecy implies inspiration. So, yes, God's Spirit dwells among us. God's Spirit is, is moving within the midst of His church. Uh, actually, I mean... I hate to keep referring to books, but that's what it boils down to. Um, there's a book. It was my favorite book of the year. It's easily on my top ten, Good News for Anxious Christians, written by Philip Carey, where he, he has a chapter where he deals with the voices uh, or the inclinations you have, or they, the promptings that you have. Are they from God or are they not from God? And he really fleshes that out in the most marvelous way. Uh, I would recommend that. Uh, at the end of the day, to, because most of, us probably, most of us have probably had an experience where we, God made an impression on our heart based upon a certain set of circumstances, and we're like, okay, God. Like, uh, but God is using Scripture, and he's recalling that to your spirit or your conscience, and he's convicting you to move in us. Like, I can remember very vividly one of my experiences since we're talking about him, and i got to cut it. But... Many years ago, 35 years ago, I remember uh, reading my Bible before I went to bed, and I'm sitting in the bed reading it, and I had this, I had this like, wow, did I, I just read something in the Bible that I found so fascinating and gripping. And I remember, like, as I'm kind of reading and kind of, you know, you reflect back to God, I'm like, God, like, I wish you would show me more things like this out of the Bible. And no sooner did I think that thought or pray that prayer in my mind that shot back to me was like, well, if you would read the Bible more, you'd get more of those moments. (laughs) Honestly, that's the honest truth. And it was right. Randy. I'm not saying we don't have experiences. We don't gather to, t- you know, our job isn't to gather and let's talk about our experiences. Though we have them, and they have a place, but boy, we've got to make sure they're in their place. They have a place, but they need to be in their place. They clearly can't contradict anything that God's Word says. Um, we, I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about this. Somebody else in the last? Uh, Alex and then Sarah and then I'll close. Is that what's considered a modern day apostle? I guess it depends who they are and how they use the, 
the little a. You know, there are some... Generally, my own vantage point, people that are calling themselves an apostle are giving themselves more authority than what I think Scripture allows. And they're teaching more beyond what Scripture teaches. Like if, if they're just up teaching God's Word, you know, and by apostle they mean they're sent out by a church, I, prob- I don't think I have any, I wouldn't quibble with that. I think I'm okay with that. But it's, my experience has been when people use the term apostle in reference to themselves, they're doing it with a certain amount of authority and, and control. Sarah. Uh, women are clearly included in prophets because Philip had four daughters who prophesied. I think uh, Corinthians also talks about if a woman prays or prophesies with her head covered or uncovered, I forget which one's which. But, but yeah, there's references to that. In fact, even the passage in, in 1 Peter, I mean, I only, so far as I know, only men wrote the words of Scripture that we have. But the word that Peter used when he said, no prophecy ever came by the will of man, it's not an exclusively masculine man. It's the word that can be used for humanity. It's used in reference to men, but it can also be used in reference to humanity in general. There's a different word that means very, women aren't included. There's another word that means women aren't included. That's not the word Peter used. So women, women can be included and in, were included in the first century in prophets. Evangelists, I think that could be the case. Teachers could be the case. From my reading of scripture, not as pastors. Good question. And on that controversial note, <laughs> let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. God, our Father, I thank you for what you saw fit to reveal to Paul.